Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. ChatGPT and other generative AI tools have caused a sensation in the marketplace. Some are heralding AI as the best innovation to come along since the internet, and others are fearful of its unforeseen large-scale societal impacts. More immediately, the risks include identity theft, privacy invasion, and compromise of IP rights. Companies such as Amazon, Apple, Accenture, Citigroup, Northrop Grumman, and others have banned the use of ChatGPT. So for the ethics and compliance practitioner, what are the major risks and what are the right mitigation strategies that need to be in place short of such a drastic move as banning the apps? Hello and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Frank Divers, Director of Thought Leadership and Best Practices at LRN. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Corderi, a compliance law firm. Jonathan has looked at many of these issues. We're going to be talking about the current and evolving risk landscape surrounding ChatGPT and generative AI. Jonathan is active in a number of professional bodies, so I should note that the views he's going to express today are his alone. So, Jonathan, thank you very much for coming on the Principled Podcast. My pleasure, Susan. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, let's start off with your practice at Corderi, since it is a compliance law firm. I know you're focused on compliance and very familiar with topics such as GDPR and data protection. So give us a flavor for your practice, if you will. Yeah, happy to, Susan. So at Corderi, we're based in London. We're doing work for mainly for multinational clients across Europe and sometimes wider field, as you say. A lot of that's around tech stuff, so data privacy and uh, cybersecurity, a lot of it relating to investigations and some work relating to issues like bribery, modern slavery, supply chain. So a fairly broad compliance practice, but only compliance. That's all we do. Fantastic. Well, let's get right into ChatGPT. Artificial intelligence has been around a while now. So why is ChatGPT causing such a big stir? Well, I think you're right, Susan. I mean, I'm obviously incredibly old and I've been practicing law for more than 30 years. But before then, I was always keen on technology as a kid. And I managed to persuade my grandparents, maybe when I was 14 years of age, that I had something that ran on AI and monitored their movements. And obviously, there were science fiction films that did that before. I think the real change has been the fact that it is a what you might call a social topic. People are talking down the pub, down the bar about AI. And obviously, press interest has followed that. I think maybe two of the other factors as well are the fact that big tech has invested heavily. So you've got, you know, for example, Microsoft's investment in OpenAI. You've got Google's 
investment in BARD that are bringing AI to the masses, where previously it was an interest of academics and those in tech circles. And I think the other reason that is perhaps a driver is nation state use of AI. And that might be applications that are broadly for good, such as the use of Google DeepMind in the National Health Service in the UK to predict illnesses. But it might be AI for bad. So, for example, the rumors of the involvement of the Russian security services in some chatbots which are preying on the vulnerable and manipulating individuals. So I think it's that sort of big tech backing plus sanction by governments and the press interest that's just made the real acceleration in the use of generative AI particularly. Now that's a very lucid and helpful explanation in some respects, it sounds like the perfect storm. One of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast in particular is in your interviews, you've pointed out that it's not quite accurate to describe the legal risks and the dimensions of chat GPT as the Wild West. There are a number of EU and US and other country laws that apply to the use of chat GPT. Can you remind us of some of those? I mean, I think the laws broadly fall into two categories. There are new laws, and there are more than 40 of those, I think, across the world that are trying to create new rules around AI. And they're in different stages of enactment. Probably the most well-known is the so-called EU AI Act, which might be in force towards the end of this year, maybe the beginning of next year, that looks to have a sort of broad code of rules. But the thing that I think is of more interest in the short term is what you might call retrofitting existing laws. So we're seeing GDPR particularly be used in different jurisdictions across the EU to try and bring some regulation to AI. So we've had, for example, the investigations by UK, EU and Australian data protection authorities into Clearview AI and the fines that have resulted from that. We've had the suspension by the Garanta, the Italian data protection authority, of replica and the temporary suspension there of chat GPT. We've had the temporary suspension by the Irish Data Protection Commission of BARD. And we've also had people concentrate on AI in HR. So the Spanish regulator, for example, has looked at recruitment-related apps Do they reinforce the bias of humans? Do they unfairly exclude people from the recruitment, the hiring, the interviewing process on the basis of a lack of fairness in those apps or lack of transparency? And we generally see issues like fairness and transparency run through GDPR enforcement across the EU. You know, there are some just under 4 billion fines for GDPR and some two and a half thousand-ish cases. And a key feature of probably more than three quarters of those cases is fairness and transparency. And we particularly see that with a lot of the cases that look at the use of AI. And as I said, it's not just 
big tech cases where regulators have got involved. It's those people who buy in AI as well, particularly for things like recruitment support. I certainly agree with you. And interestingly, one of the first specific laws in the States is a New York City ordinance that basically says if you're using ChatGPT or other large language AI to recruit and to sift through candidates, then you must ensure that it's not using algorithms that violate fairness or transparency. So it's a pretty universal approach. But there are other risks associated with it as well. And I'd love to talk to you as a data privacy expert about that, but also about intellectual property infringement and ownership. And we've already talked about the bias and transparency aspects. So let's focus on those. Yeah, I think there are definitely real concerns, I think. We've had data scientists like Tim Gebru look at the way in which we almost industrialize biases that we have, and that clearly is a concern that we've talked about already. I think the IP issues are profound. In many cases, I think a lot of those cases are going to be around training data. So obviously, AI isn't wise of itself. It accumulates wisdom by getting data from all sorts of different sources and sweating that data. So for personally, I'd love a ringside seat at the Getty versus stability litigation that's running in the US and the UK at the moment. Perhaps illustrates the point where Getty is saying about 12 million photographs were taken from the Getty archive and used as training data to train a different AI algorithm. And I know many people are altering the access agreements on their websites to try and prohibit their content being used to to train AI algorithms. But I think at its most basic level, you can obviously use things like chat GPT for bad as well. I mean, for example, just this morning, I asked ChatGPT if I was trying to pay a bribe in Malaysia, how would I disguise that so that my compliance team couldn't find out? And it told me to call the bribe Do It Kopi, which literally translates as coffee money. And it said that people in Malaysia would understand that, but probably, I'm guessing, the compliance team might not. If I was doing that in Nigeria, I should refer to the bribe as Dash or Egnuge. <laughs> Apologies for my Nigerian pronunciation. And again, that might disguise it. I even asked it to write me an email that I could send a Malaysian purchasing officer to tell him that I would be paying him a bribe or offering him a bribe without paying him a bribe. And it gave me this fabulous email, you know, in light of your exceptional performance, we are excited to introduce an enhanced commission structure to reward your contributions even more efficiently. We value our partnership and believe that this updated commission arrangement will be a testament to our commitment to recognizing your efforts. The other issue, I think, for compliance officers is it gives bad actors more tools to prohibit compliance officers from protecting the organization. So I think there are sort of what you might call overarching risks 
but there are also day-to-day risks that ethics and compliance officers have to respond to as well. That's an absolutely scary example. I'm glad you developed it for us because it really illustrates how it can be used to make it more difficult, basically, to have good internal controls. But before we leave this topic, I do want to talk just a little bit more about the IP issue, because that's such a big concern in the States in particular. Is it true that the product of ChatGPT isn't necessarily copyrighted? And are there some other considerations in that space? I think there are a lot of concerns here. I mean, there's an old-fashioned Latin maxim that lawyers used to use which is uh, dat quod non habet. This is maybe a first for an LRN podcast that people are using Latin maxims. But w- what effectively that means is you can't give the rights to something that you don't have. And I think this is a big issue with things like ChatGPT. They are potentially acquiring rights in stuff, but they're not entitled to them. You know, if, for example, I have a website, I don't know, with... Armstrong's poetry, and I reserve copyright in that to myself. And I also have an access agreement on the front of my site, which says that nobody can replicate my poetry and nobody can use it to train AI bots. Then I'm entitled to enforce that access agreement. And in some countries, I can do that through the criminal law as well. And somebody who's acquired those rights wrongfully can't then assign them to somebody else. So I think there are going to be a lot of IP disputes. As I said, I think the Getty one's going to be fascinating because that's an organization that has you know, sufficient resources to bring the case, to get it to court and establish some principles But I think there are definitely going to be issues for many organizations. And I think it becomes more worrisome when somebody takes that content from a generative AI offering and then, for example, puts it on their own website or incorporates it in their own content. There's all sorts of potential ramifications there with a duty to account for the profits that you've made and unraveling that content, particularly when you've commingled content that you've originated with content that you've grabbed from a generative AI platform. So unfortunately, I think it's good news for lawyers, but I think these are issues that we're still going to be unraveling, I'd suggest, 5, 10, 15 years from now. That's a very lucid explanation, and I would agree with you, especially as products of ChatGPT then get incorporated into other products of ChatGPT and so forth. So it'll be certainly interesting to see how that plays out. One area that I do see being overlooked sometimes in talking about ChatGPT, and I think it's an important one for compliance officers, is the potential compromise of proprietary information through the use of prompts. I understand that that's a major consideration in the various companies banning the use of ChatGPT. So 
Would you explain the risks and the concerns here, Jonathan? Yeah, I think there are all sorts of risks. You can have a general information security risk. So if it is right that uh, chatbots like Replica AI are promoted or controlled by foreign nation states, they can be used to get information from your organization to attack it. If it's a chatbot that particularly markets itself if you like it, vulnerable individuals and chats to them late at night, then they might get secrets from those vulnerable individuals. You know, I found my grandfather's wartime documents on Saturday and there were a fascinating read through. And there was a simple statement that British servicemen were given in World War II telling them not to talk to people, even if they didn't look like the enemy. And I think it would be useful for many corporations to replicate, you know, that four paragraph statement and to have that about AI, not just about, you know, talking to people who might be foreign nation spies during times of war. So I think there's the information security risk there. There's all sorts of other risks as well. You know, if you ask chat gpt for example to help you prepare a press release then that press release could contain share sensitive information there are strict rules if you're a listed entity a stock exchange listed entity on making announcements to the right people in the right format at the right time so if you're doing that preparatory work on chat gpt it's helping you with phraseology etc then you may be giving share sensitive information away there's lots of concerns i think with the working plans of organizations and of course we might think that we can trust big tech organizations like ChatGPT, like BARD. But experience has taught us that often our employees aren't able to discern organizations we can trust versus organizations that we can't trust. And as I've said, we don't know the end use of that data. Some of the data we put in to applications like ChatGPT will end up on the internet. It might not end up in the internet through our actions, but because we have input information that's been used to train the dragon, the dragon's helped somebody else, and they've cut and pasted that data and made it public. So what we've got to tell, I think, our people is that if you put that data into a generative AI platform, then you've lost control of it. Just as we've told them, I hope, over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine years, that we shouldn't use tools like Google Translate for sensitive documents because we don't know where that data ends up, then I think we've got to repeat those messages with generative AI as well. And I think you're right that for some organizations, the right response is to ban it completely. And I can understand why some of those that you listed at the top of the show would ban it. But for other organizations, they won't want to ban generative AI because they'll want their people to be familiar with it, to understand it, and to get with the program. And for many organizations, that risk balance is going to be really difficult to work out. Well, and and that will certainly be an area where ethics and compliance officers will really need to help their organizations put out clear 
reasonable and effective guidance. One of the scenarios that I've talked about at LRN is if I were to ask ChatGPT to design an anti-bribery training course, and I put a lot of our data or images or other material into ChatGPT, it's gone, basically. It's available for the next person that wants to put together an anti-bribery course. So I think that's really something to bear in mind. And if you're certainly a defense contractor, the whole issue of exporting controlled data or technology to the web becomes live. Well, thanks for that very helpful explanation. Before we close out, though, I do want to ask you one last question, too, which is you've talked a lot about deep fakes, and you've mentioned those a bit in this podcast. I think that's a thread I'd like to pull because I think it's helpful for listeners to really think about what that could mean in terms of, you mentioned the the person late at night who's lonely being asked questions by foreign powers chatbots. Yeah, I think it's much easier. You know, one of the problems, I guess, for a lot of scammers all around the world is that sometimes their lack of ability to write in coherent English has caught them out. And many of us will remember, you know, scams asking us to help launder money from relatives or people with similar names. And nearly always, the lack of English phraseology was the tell. Now, of course, all of that's gone. Any decent fraudster can use a tool like ChatGPT to correct their language, to make it seem more credible. So I think the baseline risk is there. We also know, as I've said, that there are applications out there that are particularly trying to befriend the friendless. And they might be doing it for completely altruistic reasons, or they might not. And as I say, we know that, or we believe that there are foreign powers behind some of this. But also, you can use generative AI to help with things like uh, CEO scams, those scams that we see relatively regularly, asking people to pay money and you know, the CEO directing people in the finance team. They all get markedly better when this technology is there to assist them. And so we can get a generative AI model to learn the phraseology of a CEO. And we can even use it for films. We can use it, if we choose, to mimic the voice of individuals within our organization. So I think that becomes much more concerning, not only from a fraud point of view, but from a reputation point of view, even from a regulatory point of view. You know, we know I've had cases where ill will whistleblowers have faked photographs. And they've done that in a pretty basic way using Photoshop, but they've used it to credentialize their false claim to try and cause an organization harm. As we give good people more tools to do stuff, we often also give bad people those tools as well. So we're likely to see meaningfully more persuasive whistleblower claims, for example, from bad actors that look plausible, which are not. So this whole issue of 
fakery, I think, is something that ethics and compliance professionals need to understand. And it might mean that they need to be slightly more skeptical about some of the whistleblower reports that they receive, for example. That's a very interesting example. And I'm glad I asked you to expand on that space. I would not have have thought about fakery in the whistleblower area, but obviously that's a concern along with the other issues that you've raised. Well, Jonathan, unfortunately, we're out of time. So I want to thank you for joining me on this episode. It's been a wonderful podcast, and I hope you'll come back and speak with us again soon. Yeah, I'd love to. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. My name is Susan Divers, and I want to thank you all for listening to the Principled Podcast by LRN. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.